You know, we have uh, been spending the last number of weeks talking about uh, John's letters, uh, or Jesus' letters that John has conveyed to the seven churches. And then uh, in chapters 4 and 5, as uh, John is uh, invited to come into the heavenly throne room and his eyes are open, we have considered... Uh, the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ, who uh, is there on the throne, standing by the Father. And considering that heavenly scene of um, encouragement for us, that, that God is always on the throne. And we need to be mindful of that. You know, when we read the newspaper, we need to be mindful that God is on the throne. Uh, when we see the things that are happening around the world, when we consider our own lives, uh, we need to be mindful that God is on the throne and that He is always in control. Our lives are never out of control when they are lived in God. He is always surrounding us with His care and uh, watching over us. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, there's nowhere you can go, uh, as David put it, that uh, we can escape from God. And that's a good thing. If you know Him and love Him, that you cannot get away from Him. The enemy cannot put you in a place where God cannot... Uh, come to your rescue and your aid and reach you. And so we need to be reminded of that. And John has uh, spent these last two chapters, as we've divided them up, uh, reminding us that this is the position that God occupies and that we should be encouraged by that. Because he's about to turn a corner and the things that are about to unfold in uh, the next number of chapters, all the way at least through chapter 17 of Revelation, the things that are about to unfold um, are of such a nature uh, in their uh, terrible contemplation that we need to remember who we are and who God is. And uh, as we turn the corner into chapter 6 this morning... Uh, and we are introduced to the breaking of the seals. The first four seals, as they are broken by the Lamb, as they're opened, um, release four horsemen. And uh, these are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Perhaps that's a familiar phrase to you. Um, uh, books have been written uh, that aren't even necessarily Christian. Uh, movies have been made. Uh, there has been a number of uh, there have been a number of things that have related to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And if you didn't put it all together, these four seals are what is being talked about. And as we turn the corner to consider these four horsemen, we're also turning a corner into the true apocalyptic literature of Revelation and the prophecy about the end times. 
everything that we've read up until now has largely uh, been contemporary with John. It has its spiritual application to any of us who see ourselves reflected in those pictures and images of the churches. But now, in chapter 6, we're turning toward the events that will begin to unfold at the end of human history. And it becomes prophetic in nature in the sense of foretelling the future. And one of the things that Jesus said to his disciples in his last supper with them, if you recall, he says, you are my friends. I call you my friends. A slave does not know the plans or the secrets of his master. But you are my friends because I have disclosed to you my heart, my plans, the things about the future. And you and I need to realize that the day of the Lord should not overtake us like a thief. This is Scripture. It says that that the day of the Lord will overtake the world like a thief. It will come suddenly. It will come quickly. It will come without anticipation for those outside of Christ. But for those of us who know the Lord and who are secure in Him, God has given us a blueprint of the end of time so that we can understand the signs of the times. Now, I'm not going to tell you this morning that as we read Revelation, we're going to make a direct connection between every symbol and every event. Uh, The fact of the matter is, I think that probably what's going to happen is, as we move into those end times, if you and I are alive when that occurs, that we will begin to correlate the newspaper with Revelation quite directly. In other words, there will be an unfolding understanding of precisely what these symbols and these visions mean. And we will be able to recognize this is that, so that for the church we're prepared. We're not caught unaware. We're not caught in the dark. We are people, children of the light, and we can see. And God wants us to see. He wants us to know. This is part of His comfort to us. And I have to admit that as I was preparing this message this morning, uh, for this morning, um, it it was sad. It makes me sad. Um, It's not. It's not a happy note. In fact, the 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 imagery uh, originates with Ezekiel. As he sees a scroll that's written on on both sides, and as the scroll is considered uh, in Ezekiel, it is lament and mourning and woe. And that's precisely what this scroll becomes in Revelation. Lament, mourning, and woe. And as I was preparing for that, it it did not give me any joy. It was heart-rending to consider the direction in which we're headed. And we're headed there now. There are some things that 
we're going to see in just a moment are actually unfolding today as we correlate the newspaper with these events. And these four horsemen that go forth, you remember I told you last week that the scroll was somewhat the story of human history. It was like the story of man and and God's interaction with man, but it also tells the story of man separated from God, of human beings separate from God. And as we come to the opening of this scroll, we see the natural culmination of sin that is finally released to bear its own fruit. And what we see with these four horsemen is the natural unfolding of people's inhumanity to one another as sin wreaks havoc havoc upon the human race. So these four horsemen and these four uh, prophetic seals are not necessarily the judgments of God Himself upon humanity, uh, nor are they directly the opposition of satanic opposition to humanity, but they are human consequences of our own sinfulness as people. This is what happens when sin runs rampant. And you may recall from our study of Romans uh, a while back that when you read Romans 1, you find a, a, a decline as people sin and insist on going their own way. God gives them over to their desires and their lust. And then as they become comfortable at that new level, which is a step down, They want even more of the forbidden fruit. And finally, in their rebellion, God gives them the opportunity to go further. And as we decline with the unfolding of uh, sin's consequences in Romans 1, we find that society degenerates to an all-time low. And by the way, just for the record, the, the proliferation of homosexuality is the bottom rung of the ladder of sin. There, there is something about the destruction of uh, marriage and human sexuality as God intended it to be as a type of Christ and the church that when it reaches uh, that when sin reaches the bottom uh, of the pile, that there at the bottom is the complete loss uh, of sexual morality and, and sexual intention and purpose in the uh, covenant relationship of marriage, and it gets all mixed up and skewed, and people go off the wire. That does not mean, by the way, that we should hate uh, homosexuals. We need to love them into the kingdom. Their sin is not worse than any other sin at a certain level. 
But when a society degenerates, it is the bottom of the ladder. As we go into the abyss, that's the bottom of the ladder. And so as we look at Revelation chapter 6 and we begin to follow the path, we see that with the release of each horseman, there is a natural consequence and decline from one state to the next that results in in an utter disaster that ultimately consumes a fourth of the earth's population. It's a lot of background, I realize that, a lot of long introduction, but having said that, Let's look now at the first seal. Revelation 6.1, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there was before me a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Who is this first horse and rider, this one in white with a crown on his head? Some exegetes, scholars, have misunderstood this as a portrayal of Jesus Christ. But that does not fit the context. Christ is the one breaking the seals and opening the scroll. He is not the one on the horse. Secondly, In Revelation 19, when we see Jesus returning on a white horse, um, he doesn't have a bow, he has a sword. And uh, he is going forth as King of kings and Lord of lords. And uh, his raiment and and all about him is a symbol of, of purity and holiness as he arrives for the benefit of his bride and for the deliverance of Israel. But in this instance, this rider goes forth with a bow which was uh, recognized as the symbol of war. And he goes forth conquering and for conquest. It's a depiction that released upon the world will be a, a, a withdrawal of the grace of God that allows nations even more and more to war against one another. The Scripture says you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars until the end of time. In some senses, it's telling us that this is going to be simply the way it is. There's not going to be a time when we can say there's peace on the earth, at least not until Jesus comes. But I want to read the passage in Matthew that I've referenced on the back of your study guide. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, they said, Tell us, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. 
All of these are the beginning of birth pangs. Now, I want to point out to you that in Matthew chapter 24, who is asking the question? Tell us, Lord, when will these things occur and what will be the sign of your coming? At face value, what, what is the question? Lord, we want to know when you're going to return. The disciples are asking the question. Do you consider yourself to be a disciple this morning? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Would this not be a question that you would ask? Lord, tell us when is your coming? Do you think Jesus would leave out something really significant and important like, oh, by the way, um, you don't have to worry about any of this because the rapture is going to occur and pull you out of here before any of this happens. That's not the question the disciples ask. They were asking a straightforward question. Tell us when these things are going to be. And Jesus says, this is what you will see. And this is only the beginning of birth pangs. I want to say to you this morning that whatever your position is on the time of the rapture, Jesus acknowledges that what we're seeing in Revelation 6, 1 through 8, is not classically the tribulation, the great tribulation. It is the beginning of birth pangs. It is the prelude into the Revelation uh, tribulation. And so, as we read this, these are things that we're going to see. Whether the rapture occurs pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, the church is going to experience the birth pangs of the beginning of the end as we're moving toward that seven-year period that is particularly uh, terrible in its tribulation. And so we may see uh, these things unfold. I, I, I want to tell you, I don't know when they will be. I don't know if they will be in my lifetime. I don't know if they will even be in the lifetime of everyone here. Or we may already be in the early stages. I don't know. I can't uh, put a chronology to this. But this first horse is released with its rider to allow wars to proliferate upon the planet as nation goes to war with nation and one people goes to war with someone else. And what do people fight over? What are the kinds of things that lead nations into war? Do you think it's all ideological? It's not, is it? Uh, you know, we have, and, and don't misunderstand me, there is a certain nobility from a political and nationalistic standpoint of protecting those who are oppressed and protecting our borders and our assets. 
But if you ask most people in the Middle East, what is America here for? You know what they will tell you? Oil. They're here to protect their interest. End of story. It's not the politics. It's not who's in charge. It's who will keep the tap open to keep the oil flowing. Nations go to war with nations largely to accomplish or achieve something that they want. And while there may in fact be a layer of moral sensitivity and obligation to certain actions, underneath it all, people are fighting not for ideology so much today as for winning what they want to win. World War II was a war that largely had to do with a, a moral compulsion to protect the world for, from a demagogue or two of them actually that were bent on ruling the world in a way that was ungodly and, and uh, very, um, very frightening. But since that time, it seems like we have continued uh, to go away from that motivation. And even if the United States carries the banner for uh, righteous causes, even if that's true, most of the world is out for something else. And then in the midst of it, and I'll get to this in a moment though, you have other things arise such as ISIS that doesn't seem to have any loyalty to any nation. They have killed more Muslims than they've killed anybody else because they're, they are somewhat ideological in their mindset, and then there are certain things that uh, are, are believed by leaders that are just downright scary. There's a philosophy out there that says if we destroy the planet, anarchy will give rise to rebuilding something better. And this is largely put in a construct um, that is not at all Christian. Let me just put it that way. And so the first thing that will be seen is nations rising against nations, fighting one another for their ability to gain prominence in certain areas. And then he says, the second seal is opened, verse 3, when the Lamb opened the second seal... I heard the second living creature say, Come. And then again, another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. Now, what happens when nations go to war with other nations? What is the natural consequence of that? you find situations develop generating thousands of refugees. You find circumstances 
where governments are destabilized and the political structure is broken down to the losers, and all of a sudden people are without the protection of the rule of law. Listen, when Paul said, Obey the authorities that are over you and recognize them with fear and respect because they do not bear the sword in vain. Uh, They are the ministers of God avenging His righteousness upon the unrighteous or upon the wicked. He spoke those words of Rome. That was an ungodly nation. Ruled by ungodly emperors who in certain cases thought themselves to be gods. This was a nation where people would dedicate their homes by exposing their firstborn to death and then placing that fetus, that baby, uh, newborn, in a jar in the wall as a dedication to the protection of their home. This was a a nation like we've never seen. I mean, we're getting pretty bad in America, but we don't hold a candle still to Rome. And Paul said of Rome, be under their authority, respect them, have reverence for those who bear the sword. Because they are God's ministers who minister His judgment on the unrighteous. What does that mean? It means any government is better than no government. That's what it means. Any government is better than no government. And so if war disrupts the political agenda and the political structure of a nation, and the nation suddenly uh, becomes uh, without leadership and without direction, and refugees rise by the thousands and tens of thousands and millions, you have a whole different situation where anarchy begins to rule in the streets. And this situation... (laughs) is not good. The writer was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. Every time I open my browser these days to check my email, which is every day that I live, I see more headlines of people killing other people. I I thought to myself, and, and believe me, I do not agree with everything I have seen um, regarding uh, the, the behavior of certain police officers. I think some of the things that have been shown on national news are sad, sadly wrong and, and are serious. But, but let me tell you, most police officers go to their jobs every day with an intention of doing well for the public. They intend to do the right thing. They're not there uh, to be bullies. That's not their goal. 
when when you're talking about a minuscule, even if it were one half of one percent, do you realize that would be a couple of thousand law enforcement officers? It doesn't take many. And what have we heard uh, of maybe three or four or five that have done foolish things? And people shooting police officers just because they're in uniform and they're police? What, what in the world is going on with our thinking? I, I tell you what, that kind of thinking only generates more uh, fear and unrest. I, I don't know about you, but uh, very practically, uh, just a practical word of advice if you care to take it. Uh, I have changed certain of my um, protocols in terms of reacting. I, I can't remember the last time I was stopped for any reason. But if it happens, I have my driver's license, my insurance card, and my registration in a clear packet right over my sun visor so that if I'm stopped... I don't have to touch my body. I can keep my hands in plain sight and take one item out to hand to the officer that has all the identification I'm required to show so that my hands always in plain sight and never below the level of the windows, I can give him what he needs because he is afraid of me and he is rightfully afraid of me. It used to be that most police officers were killed in routine traffic stops. And now when people are gunning for the police, the, the whole paradigm has shifted. And while they want to do well, they are in great distress as a, as a population of servants because of the mayhem and craziness that's being wreaked upon them. And, and I'll tell you, there's nothing you can do to protect yourself from a sniper. That person will get off one shot. They may not get off anymore, but they will get off one, and it may be the kill shot. And no one ever has an idea that it's coming until somebody drops. What is going to happen as the wars begin to proliferate is senseless killing is going to proliferate as well. The headline this morning as I opened my email, 14-year-old girl is arrested for slitting the throat of her brother's 15-year-old girlfriend because she didn't like her. And she cut her throat for the simple reason to say, I hope you have a nice afterlife. And she had no remorse. She's 14. And she has no remorse as she attempts to murder. They were able to get there in time to save the 15-year-old. But the 14-year-old, after her made-up story fell apart, had absolutely no remorse. She faces 40 years in prison for intentional, premeditated, first-degree attempted murder. And she doesn't care. And she's 14. What is going on? 
as you read Paul's letter to, to Timothy, the love of many will grow cold. Children will become haters of parents. Parents are going to become indifferent to their kids. Uh, madness and mayhem will rule the streets. Uh, sexual immorality will, will be on the rise. People will have no conscience and they won't care. And that's precisely what Revelation says is going to happen in the second phase as we see this senseless killing of one another on the rise. We need to be aware of what's happening in our world. One of the significant differences is these kinds of things have happened in local, in locales around the world since the beginning of time. This is a story that is not new to us. But what we're seeing in Revelation chapter 6 is this is going to expand to a worldwide phenomenon. And what happens? We read someone gets killed in Germany, someone goes on a machete uh, spree somewhere, uh, there's mayhem in, in France, and then the United States picks it up, or Britain, or some other country, and all of a sudden, uh, the ripple effect, because we're so connected today, we, we can see live footage as it unfolds anywhere in the world. And it just inspires the crazies to get crazier. And so the whole problem begins to escalate. And one of the most concerning things about ISIS, and I think we will see more of these groups rise, but one of the most concerning things is people buy into that on their own. There is no organization to follow. There is no trail to, to trace. Um, we can't identify every potential terrorist because they turn up in our backyard. They're our neighbor. And we have no idea what they're thinking. And as time goes along, this second writer will release this tragedy upon humanity. When the Lamb opened the third seal, verse 5, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wage, and six pounds of barley for a day's wage, and do not damage the oil and the wine." What happens when wars have ravaged the planet and anarchy reigns in the streets? What happens to the economy? What happens to the commerce? What happens to the farmlands and the farms and the sources and supply of food? Who has time to, to grow crops when they're thinking of survival, and what, what of those armies that ravaged the, the fields and destroyed the grain as a, as a result of their conquering, massive 
famine will spread upon the earth. When they say, when this uh, statement says, a quart of wheat or a pound of wheat for a Daenerys, it literally means, according to the, the model of John's day, it took a quart of wheat to feed one person for one day. That was the amount of wheat that was required to make a sufficient amount of bread for survival. Barley was not nearly as nutritious a grain, and so it, but it, you could buy more of it because it was a cheaper grain. And so what, what does it say? Four quarts or six pounds of barley for a day's wage. Here's what this means. That a person can only earn enough in a day to feed themselves. What if you're a father? What if you're a mother? And you have children and family. But you can only earn enough to keep yourself alive. Or you can buy the lesser quality barley. And you might be able to feed your family, but they're going to begin to show the signs of malnourishment sooner. Um, don't translate all of that into contemporary nutrition, okay? Our wheat is different. Our, our grains are different. Um, we're, we're in trouble. <laughs> we, we eat and we're still malnourished, but that's another story. But in John's day, it took a day's wage for a day's food. How are you going to pay your utilities? How are you going to make your mortgage? How are you going to pay your rent? How are you going to buy gas for your car? How are you going to even have a car? How are you going to have clothing? How are you going to have these other necessities? We're talking about a kind of famine that exists in the refugee camps at the lowest levels. But this is worldwide and everyone will be subject to this kind of famine. This is amazing, friends. Um, let's say uh, another estimate that I studied was that the, uh, the inflationary value of food will rise between 1,000 and 1,500%. So let's say that you currently spend $100 a week on your edible groceries. Your budget may be higher or lower, I don't know, but let's take a hundred because it's easy to work with. In this period of time, it will take you a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars a week to buy the same amount of groceries. Now you're spending four to six thousand a month on groceries. You haven't bought anything else, just groceries, just food for your family. How is that going to go, do you think? And so as famine spreads, so will other problems with malnourishment and, and the compromise of the immune system and other essential utilities and services uh, becoming um, uh, deteriorated and of less importance, then all of a sudden you have an environment that is unhealthy 
and people begin to get sick. And so when the Lamb, verse 7, opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by wild beast of the earth. Even in that day, the animals will lack for food and will begin to lose their fear of man as they roam looking for ways to feed themselves and weakened human beings will become their prey. And so the time will come where the famine will turn into plagues and plagues uh, will result in uh, more of this survival of the fittest in the beastly sense of the word and animals will actually become a part of the predator situation. Not a very pretty picture, is it? And we're not even in the tribulation yet. This is ugly stuff. As God begins to take the gates that have held back the consequence of sin and allow judgment to flow out in this sequence of events, wars resulting in anarchy, resulting in famine, resulting in the loss of 25% of lives, that the world will disintegrate into this abyss of sin. This is the story of humanity apart from God. You know, one thing that we should be aware of is that it is the grace of God that keeps us where we are today. It is His mercy and His loving kindness. What do you think America deserves today? Aren't you glad God is not giving that to us? Rowena found a paper on the internet that she gave me to read as the Church of Satan is going to be starting after school clubs for elementary children. Um, and what they are doing is they are piggybacking on the landmark decision won by good news clubs that they have a right to meet on school property to share the gospel after classroom time with parent parental permission. And having won that landmark freedom of religion, the Church of Satan is now piggybacking on the freedom of religion and saying, if they have the right, we have the right. Now, when you hear the Church of Satan, you have to realize they don't really believe in a devil. They don't really believe in a person who is Satan. They don't believe in God. They are rationalist. They are empiricist. They believe uh, in science and rationalism as the true answer to all of man's issues. They believe in evolution as the genuine story of the uh, development of humanity. 
And what they want to do is offer a club that is religious in nature called the Church of Satan because they are opposing biblical Christianity. They want to offer this club to teach rationalistic ways of thinking and, and, and humanism and basic value of all people as being equal and the evolutionary process as being the, the means of life. And so they want to do this good favor for children uh, of elementary school age. My goodness. My goodness, what are we thinking? What do we deserve as a nation? How far have we fallen? Where have we gone? And I'm just talking about America. This is worldwide. God holds back the natural product of sin and consequence of sin. He holds it back in His mercy to give us opportunity to repent. And He also gives us the opportunity and, and the compulsion, the passion to share the message of the good news with people while there's time. Work for the night is coming when man's work is done. And we are rapidly approaching the time when the opportunity to share the message of Jesus Christ will soon become a thing of the past without great risk. We need to take advantage of our moments now and recognize that there will come a day when this sequence of events will unfold worldwide and we'll read it in our newspapers and we'll realize this is that. But I want to remind you that John begins chapter 6 having given us a vision of God on the throne and we're His children and we are safe. We are eternally preserved and He will bring us safely to His heavenly kingdom. And we can count on that. And I am so eternally grateful for His mercy that He has shown me the truth of life in Jesus Christ.